0: So there's a saying, right, that's cliche, that you don't know what you have or you don't appreciate what you have until it's gone. Uh, in fact, there's probably hundreds of country music songs about losing a loved one or something like that that, uh, that fit that bill. Um, and it's typical, you start dating someone, for example, and you try and woo them, and you create these creative dates and the love notes and all this stuff. And then you get married, and there's this tension that uh, every married person goes through that uh, uh, the tension between, gosh, I can really be myself and feel comfortable, and that's a great thing. And then the other half is getting lazy and, um, you know, never brushing your teeth anymore or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, you, um, your relationship comes to a crossroads, and you realize the seriousness of the situation you're in that Really, you could lose this person because you've, you've become so lazy uh, and unattentive to them, and you have a, a decision to make. You either change your ways or you completely give up. Um. Most of us, I think, have good gifts that we often take for granted. I take electricity for granted all the time. And I was listening to this NPR special the other day, and this guy talking, he was an astrophysicist talking about something called a plasma bullet. I guess the last plasma bullet that that came uh, over the United States happened in like 1859. And he said our grid is so archaic that it would just knock out our grid and melt the mega transformers that we don't have replacements for. So literally, if you're in an urban area you would be in huge trouble because you would have no refrigeration and the pumps that pump our water and all that stuff. You'd be better off just to go camping or or be in a rural place. And I'm starting to think about how often I take those things for granted. Certainly in our relationship with God, we can take things for granted. What may start as this amazingly energetic humbling encounter with jesus i don't know if you remember uh that encounter with jesus you first had when you said yes i'm going to start following you and and you felt that freedom from forgiveness of sin and it, uh you're singing songs all the time to jesus and it's it just this wonderful experience but after a while we can take it for granted can't we and, and following jesus can become this dry religious experience we feel entitled to god's grace we can take the gifts of god and begin to see them as our due reward for going to church or serving or reading our bibles or whatever it is and when we get too lazy in our faith we end up banking on a decision we might have made a long time ago and we realize oh my goodness i don't really have a living faith anymore i'm just banking on this old decision Thankfully, God knows the fickle nature of our hearts and how easy it is uh, we take things for granted. And he bends over backwards, really, pursues us, pursues us, pursues us. And one of the ways that he reminds us of uh, the importance of a living faith is through his word. Uh, And tonight we're going to look at a parable, uh, actually a series of them in Matthew 21, that help bring to the forefront this necessity of following Jesus afresh. In this chapter, uh, chapter 21, we've seen already in the last couple weeks Jesus coming into the temple, people praising his name with hosannas. And uh, he comes into that temple because for the Jews it was the center of their universe. Literally, they believed it was the place where heaven and earth intersect, converge. That's where God's presence was most fully known. Jesus condemns the leadership of the temple. And when the leaders challenge Jesus' authority, based on the the text that Emily just read, what we see is um, they want to know who gave you the authority to say these things, who gave you the authority to come into the temple of God and kick over the tables and knock over the chairs of the money changers and all that. Now, Jesus knows that this is a trap. This is all taking place in the court of the Gentiles with crowds around, undoubtedly because it's the Passover season. And what these leaders want to do is to show Jesus up in front of people. They know that if Jesus says, my authority is from God because I'm the Son of God or the Messiah, that he would have to prove it or be charged for blasphemy. If Jesus says, I have no divine authority, he'd be lying And it would reduce his status among the people. So Jesus, mastermind, uh, go ahead and outmaneuvers these leaders. He goes, I've got a question for you. I'll answer your question if you answer mine. John the Baptist. Was his ministry from heaven or from men? Dang, they're thinking, he got us. Because now those same crowds that they wanted to turn against Jesus are listening to the answer to this question. If they say that John the Baptist's ministry was from God, from heaven, then Jesus could say, then why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you repent and change your ways and come to see me as the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world? If, on the other hand, the religious leaders say John's ministry was from man, the crowds would turn against them. They highly esteemed John the Baptist, believed he was a prophet, maybe uh, the highest prophet that had ever come. So these religious leaders say, we don't know. Kind of to safe face, lame answer though, isn't it? And so Jesus goes on, I don't know if you want to call it the offensive, but he takes the initiative of this situation and he tells two parables, now, before we dig into the parable we're going to cover tonight, I wanted to remind us something about parables. Parables, the ones that Jesus tells us, always, always, always are told to elicit a response. Jesus just doesn't tell stories. I mean, he might have done that around the campfire. Most of them didn't get into the Bible, okay? So he, he tells these parables in order to have the hearer respond, Okay? Sometimes he tells very uh, encouraging parables. Sometimes he tells parables that are very direct, challenging, even convicting and condemning. But every single time he tells a parable, he wants people to respond in repentance and draw closer to God. So they're always with a good intent. Now, the parable we're going to focus on tonight is no exception. Jesus tells it to these leaders to get them to repent of their folly. Now, why should we care? Why should we take a Sunday evening, a beautiful one at that, and listen to a story that Jesus tells to get some dead religiously dead guys now uh, to repent like 2,000 years ago? I think it's important. Because if you recall how easy it is for us to take things for granted, could it be that we need reminders of who we really are, of who God really is, and to put ourselves in proper alignment. Uh, I propose that this parable tonight has a lot to say to us, and what I want to do is read it together. Uh, We're going to break it down and look at what Jesus meant to tell those religious leaders, and then see what it has to say for you and for me. So stand with me, please, as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. This picks right up on the heels of what what Emily read to us just a minute ago. Jesus said, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and he went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at their proper seasons. Well, Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and It's marvelous. In our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them, and they sought to seize him, and they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to say some hard things to us. Thank you for not letting us just uh, go down a road that leads to sin and death, but for giving us wake-up call time and time again, for giving us opportunity to see reality, and to repent. I thank you for that very gracious heart of yours that pursues and pursues and pursues. Please, overcome the drowsiness of a hot room and the end of a long weekend, uh, and Lord, open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated but you don't have to, <laughs> whatever it takes to stay awake. So one thing, I, I just can't reiterate enough that the story Jesus tells, this parable, while it's very convicting and condemning, and it's to the point, he is only telling it out of a motivation of love. I don't see any other Jesus in the Bible, and, uh, and I think he tells it so that those leaders would actually turn and repent, isn't it true that sometimes it takes a shocking message to get our attention? Right. Well, Jesus begins his parable with some stock imagery from Israel's history. The vineyard. The vineyard was one of those images that uh, was connoted to the nation of Israel. In fact, this particular um, first part of the parable, comes right from Isaiah chapter 5. So if you want to nerd out later, l- read Isaiah chapter 5, and you'll be like, no way, this is just like that. Isaiah 5 um, tells the story of a landowner who plants a vineyard. He takes great care, clears the land, plants the vineyard, puts a hedge around it, builds a watchtower to keep vandals and thieves out. And typically in the ancient Near East, when you would plant a vineyard in that in that Climate. It would take four years from the time you planted it, four years of great care and nurture until it would produce a crop that was worthy of making grape or wine. But this vineyard, this this, this landowner in Isaiah chapter five, is so hopeful for this vineyard that even when he first plants it, he digs a vat, a wine press, because he just knows it's going to bear fruit. He's going to take such good care of it. Isaiah is telling the story to the Israelites. And he says, years and years and years go by, far past the time when these grapes ought to produce uh, wine. And he says, even after all the care that this landowner uh, care, cared for this vineyard for, it didn't produce. And he turns to Israel and he says, what would you do to the vineyard? And they say with one voice, we would burn that vineyard and plant a new one. And Isaiah looks them in the eyes, and says, the vineyard of the Almighty God is Israel. And he looked for justice, and he found bloodshed, and he looked for righteousness, and he found murder and adultery and idolatry. Okay? So Isaiah is using this imagery of a vineyard, hundreds of years, centuries before Jesus, um, to wake Israel up. say you're going off like god has chosen you he's poured his life into you he's protected you at every turn and the way that you're headed is the way of judgment now we know what happens uh, after isaiah chapter 5 is the, the, the the kingdom was divided israel and judah israel gets squashed scattered destroyed judah ends up going into captivity with babylon okay? Hundreds of years later, a remnant from Judah, not the entire nation, a a remnant of Judah gets back into the Holy Land, into into Israel and Jerusalem. They begin to rebuild the temple, and it it is in this setting, this context, that now Jesus is pulling out this image of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. The temple in Jesus' day was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It came about from the strange marriage of religion and Herod and his political alliance with Rome. So you've got Rome, the Herodian rule, and the religious folks all in concert together to make this massive, amazing temple. And what we learn is that the leaders had become so overcome with feelings of entitlement that they missed the very movement of God taking place in their day. So when Jesus tells the leaders this parable, they would have seen the vineyard that he's talking about as Israel. And Jesus continues. He says the landowner, which is God, went away and entrusted the day-to-day operation of the vineyard to tenant farmers. These tenant farmers would oversee the growth and, and care of the vineyard while the master was away. It was a common thing in the ancient world. Wealthy landowners would plant a vineyard or create a villa and then they would move on and do the same thing somewhere else and what they would expect is that tenant farmers would care for this thing that they would take even a cut of the produce for themselves but once a year and when the seasons were right the landowner would send servants or slaves and he would receive his share of the produce or or his cut of the wine vineyards are planted to produce fruit wine well, Jesus continues, the time came for the landowner to collect the harvest, so he sent this delegation of servants to the tenant farmers. The farmers took the landowner's slaves and beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Now, the landowner, it's almost inconceivable, sends another envoy larger than the first, but the tenant farmers did the same thing. Now, finally, after all of these slaves and servants are either getting beat up, humiliated and abused or killed, the landowner says, I will send my only son, my son. Mark's gospel says only son. And surely they will respect my son. But seeing the landowner's heir coming, they plotted to drag him outside the vineyard and kill him. See, they mistook the kindness and the long-suffering uh, attitude of the landowner. They mistook that for na- naivete and impotence. They thought that once the son was dead, they would have rights to the land. Now, Jesus turns to the temple leaders, and he asks, Then the owner of the vineyard comes, and when he comes, what will he do to those tenant farmers? What will he do to those vine growers? And the religious leaders say, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay the fruit due at the proper season. Let's pause just for a minute. Have you ever heard a story like this before? Have you ever heard, in the Bible, have you ever heard a story similar to this one before? I'll give you a hint. It's in 2 Samuel. Yeah, Jennifer? David, yeah. David, man after God's own heart. Decides to have an affair with a married woman. He uses and abuses his power as king to call this woman Bathsheba into his court. Back then a woman didn't have any say what you would do uh, in front of a king. He wanted her. He got her. While her husband Uriah was out at war. And David has relations with this woman. She conceives a son by David. And David has her husband killed in battle on the front lines. So the prophet Nathan comes to David. He said, I got a story for you. There's two men, a rich man who has flocks and flocks of sheep, and a poor man who could afford one tiny lamb. And from the time that lamb was an ewe lamb, he fed it out of his own cup, let it drink milk out of his own dish at the dinner table. He loved it like a daughter. Well, one day, an important dignitary came to town, and The thing to do is to show hospitality by providing a meal. The rich man was unwilling to part with one of his many sheep, so he took the poor man's one sheep and killed it and offered it as a meal to the dignitary. What would you do in this situation? And David burned with anger, thinking actually it was a real story. David wanted justice on this man. Nathan says to him, You are that man oh can you feel the power so nathan tells a story and david gets all into the story and he wants justice against the evil people person in the story and then nathan reveals buddy it's about you you just condemned yourself the same thing is going on in this parable it's called a judicial parable it's kind of i don't know bait and switch so So Jesus gets these religious leaders to condemn the bad guys in the story. And he's about ready to tell them that they're the bad guys in the story. And here's how he does it. Jesus quotes Psalm 118, which is about a king, uh, the king of God's people, being attacked and disrespected by enemies. The psalmist praises God because the nations who look down on the king are going to be crushed by this stone, this cornerstone. God's going to vindicate the king and show up uh, the, the, the people who are evil against him. Now, up to this point, let, just track with me. The religious leaders that are listening to Jesus, they think, yeah, we, we know all about that. The cornerstone, that's, that's the Temple Mount. Well, and we're, we're the stewards of the Temple Mount. So, yes, we love 100 Psalm, Psalm 118. We love that Psalm because that's about us, isn't it? It's about God taking the temple and, and us who are in charge of the temple and, and crushing Rome, Right? Okay, all right. So then Jesus continues The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And I know that didn't mean much to you, but let me break it down. What Jesus just did is allude to Daniel chapter 2. Okay, remember Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream. Like, I don't know what he had for dinner or was taken on this... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, But anyway, he has this dream of a giant statue. And no one can interpret the dream. Uh, So he heard about this guy Daniel, uh, who was a prisoner. He was an Israelite. So Daniel comes and says, I can't interpret the dream, but my God can. Let me do it for you. The dream is this. There's this giant statue with a head of gold and arms and chest of silver And belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay. Not the strongest thing in the world, okay? And he says this, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, the golden head is Babylon. That's your rule. You will be succeeded by the silver chest with the silver arms. That's going to be Persia. And then they're going to be taken over by Greece, which is the bronze belly and the bronze thighs, of which will be uh, displaced by another kingdom which we know to be Rome, most scholars would agree, that Rome are the iron legs. And here's the crazy thing. These religious leaders and people in in first century Judaism thought that the feet of clay mixed with iron were also Rome, that it was the kingdoms of the world, and that the rock that would crush those feet are the temple. Because in that prophecy, it talks about a, a stone being hewn out of a mountain without human hands that would crush those those feet. So the whole time, the religious leaders are thinking it's about them and what Jesus is doing. Check this out. As he's saying, what if the enemy is not Rome? What if those feet mixed with clay and iron are not the Roman Empire, and the stone that is going to crush them is not the Temple Mount? In fact, didn't we just read last week in chapter 21 how Jesus talked about prayer and taking that temple mount and getting it thrown into the sea? What if, what if those feet mixed with iron and clay are that strange unholy relationship between religion and politics and and the Herodian king, the Herodian dynasty? What if your temple leaders are so in bed with the enemy and so corrupted that you're not even seeing John the Baptist as he really is. You're not seeing the Messiah in front of you. And so guess who the stone is? Jesus. Now, check this out. In Hebrew, the word for son is ben. So everybody say ben. That's ben, there he is right there. Ben! Okay. In Hebrew, the word for stone is Eben. So say with me now, the ben is the ebon the ben is the ebon the sun is the stone and when you read this in uh, uh, in the language and you see these words right next to each other it's beautiful this makes my hair stand up because I'm geeking out over this stuff but um, this means that the stone that's going to crush these empires is not the temple It means that the feet of iron and clay are the corrupt partnership between temple leadership and political powers. And Jesus is the stone who is going to be rejected and, in fact, will be killed in less than a week chronologically in this story. And the vineyard, that is Israel, who is under the stewardship of the tenant farmers of the temple leaders, is going to be transferred to new stewardship And that new stewardship, that new people, is going to be mixed between Jews and Gentiles and women and men. And it won't matter what your lineage is. What will matter is where you place your faith. And that would be in the Ben Eben, the son who is the stone in Jesus the Christ. Amen? Okay. Now, if there's any doubt that the Pharisees were mad about this or that Jesus meant this, read verses 45 and 46 where they are so furious that they want to kill him but they're afraid because the crowds, okay? Uh, Now, this is a hard word. Like, I kind of feel bad for these guys because I can see how I can get off track. I think I'm serving the Lord, and all of a sudden, I realize I'm not, or I'm totally off base. This is a word that Jesus gave these leaders that would turn their world upside down. But first and foremost, it is a word that's motivated by love. Parables are given to elicit response. And Jesus came to save the world, not to condemn the world. So instead of just allowing these leaders to go blindly toward judgment, he warns them with this parable, and he hopes that they will repent and believe. Okay, so that's that. What on earth does this have to do with you and me? I And trust me, I hope there's a payoff here, because it's hot, and I just talked a lot. So, why did Matthew you got to ask yourself the question. The Gospels are weird. Like with Paul, you realize I'm reading something that a man wrote to a church or a number of churches. It's kind of like you're listening into a conversation. But remember with the Gospels, there's actually three layers of things going on. You're reading an account of the life of Jesus. So, okay, Jesus did these things and said these things. That's one layer. Then you're reading an account of, oh, this was written after Jesus resurrected. So why did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write these things? Why these things of all of Jesus' life? And why in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, why is this parable in all of them? It must be so important. Why did Matthew think that this would be good news for the church? Matthew tells us this story about Jesus confronting the religious leaders. Because in Christ, you and I are the new religious leaders. I know, mind blown, right? The one that he's going to transfer that vineyard to, the new tenant farmers, the new leaders, that's you. That's me, if you are in Christ, okay? So we better listen, listen up. In Christ, we are the priesthood of believers. We are the church. We are the house of the holy. Paul says that the Holy Spirit dwells in the church, in your heart and mine. We represent Christ to the world. So we need to hear this parable. We need to hear what it has to say lest we take our positions for granted and begin to assume uh, we just deserve all that we have. So let me just tell two things I think this parable is teaching us. There's like 17, but I just want to give two because it's, Late. Okay, so first, <laughs> first I think this parable, oh, I think it communicates the graciousness of God. If you look at the verbs in just the first couple sentences, you'll see just how creative and proactive God is. Look at these verbs. Planted, protected with a wall, dug a winepress, rented it out, sent his slaves to receive the fruit, and when his servants, the prophets, were mistreated, he didn't blow anything up. When you think about the wealth of a landowner owner, he could afford a small army and just go squash these scufflaws. I like to say scoff laws sometimes. Uh, he, he could just go, just go crush these guys. Like you don't you don't smack my servants around. You don't disrespect the landowner. That's what a human, you know, a person of the world would do. That's probably what I would do. But I'm not God. Thank God. Okay, so what God does though is, is he's gracious. And and so his his first Prophets and servants get abused and mistreated and killed. And he graciously sends more. And when they are scorned, ignored, and humiliated and killed, he extends even more grace and he sends his son. This is a God who creates out of love and loves what he creates. This is a God who is gracious and one who pursues over and over again. This is one who gives time for repentance And he gives what is most precious to him in order to reconcile us to himself. This parable shows us that God defines graciousness. That's good news. Second, I think this parable also is a mirror that shows the ugliness of my heart and the heart of of human beings. If all the verbs in the parable describing the action of God are gracious, the verbs describing the actions of people are nothing short of sinister. Took, beat, killed, stoned, seized, threw out, all for their own gain, also that they, who had no vineyard to start with unless it was given to them in the first place, also that they could then take the rights to that thing that was a gift in the first place they wanted the gift of the lord without having him as their lord and i was thinking about this in in terms of a culture that we're saturated in it's a culture of do whatever you want unless it hurts somebody else Um, i think we need stories like this from time to time to confront us with our own rebellion When we resist the reign of God through disobedience to his word, and when we resist the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we are rebelling against the very God who gave us the life in the first place. I mean, it sounds ridiculous when you lay it out like that, but we know how easy it is. The summer I was taking a course up at Regent College, and uh, each day I would go to the chapel service on Friday uh, of one of the weeks. Uh, Bruce Walkie, an Old Testament scholar, was giving the chapel talk, and he was talking, uh, introducing communion. And one of the things, um, you know, Walkie is like, I think he's in his 80s now. He's just brilliant, and you don't, I've never really seen him get too emotional before, but he he shared how, in preparation for communion, this is an 80-year-old Bible scholar. I'm sure he's thought about this stuff over and over again. And I love how he just brings it fresh. He said, it's been troubling me in preparation for this because I'm troubled by their gratuitous, violent death of Jesus. And he had this illustration, and he said, you know, I don't know in this mixed crowd where people are at with capital punishment, but humor me. And one could sort of wrap their mind around that at certain times that capital punishment might be a valid option. And he said, but, The whole world, the whole nation was in an uproar a few months ago when the man in Oklahoma on death row uh, was part of a botched execution and he stayed alive for nearly an hour. And he said at that point it was clear that proponents of uh, who are for capital punishment and those who are against, everybody thought that that was wrong. He said, why do we think that is wrong? Because we as human beings inherently believe gratuitous suffering is wrong. And he said, I'm really struggling with why Jesus had to go through what he had to go through. He says, fine, like, let's say, which we believe as Christians, that Jesus came to dive and to atone for our sin. He says, I can understand that at a cognitive level. Why couldn't Jesus just have been beheaded or ceremonially sacrificed? Why, he's saying and struggling with, why did he have to be so humiliated? And beaten and scourged, have the flesh ripped off his back, be crucified naked, the most humiliating way of death in the Roman Empire. Why all of that? Which he left me on the edge of my seat, so I'm going to do it to you. Yeah, why? Why all of that? And he said, I was reflecting on this, and he says, it came to me that the reason Jesus' death is so violent and nasty is because in some way, shape, or form, it mirrors the vileness of our sin. I thought that Bruce Waltke would bring up examples of murder and adultery and horrible genocide. Uh, I thought he would bring those things up. But to my dismay, because I'm not guilty of any of those things, to my dismay, he brought up simple everyday things. He brought up the fact that when someone cuts somebody off in traffic, which I have been known to do from time to time. He says, what you're really saying is that your agenda, your feelings of freedom, are inherently more important than that other person. That you are the Lord of this world, that you are the Lord of this situation, You have no regard for that other person. You have no idea where they're trying to go. You have no idea what's going on in their car, in their mind, in their heart. You automatically make a decision that you are more important than that person. And he had a few other examples, too. You could just use your imagination. The decisions that we make every day that seem small. And I think a lot of us, I do this too, think that, you know, after this many years of following Jesus, I'm a pretty good guy. Like, I'm mostly good and I make a few mistakes. I raise my voice sometimes with the kids or with Cory, or, you know, I get impatient from time to time. But I'm a pretty good guy, right? And it, it just shows me that, no, when I'm making those decisions, I'm making myself Lord. I'm making myself infinitely more important than everyone else around me. Everyone else, by the way, who is made in the image of God. I need a parable like this to remind me sometimes of who I really am. The question is, what will happen when the landowner's son comes to the new stewards of the vineyard and says, where's my fruit? What have you produced? Give me an account of the stewardship of the gifts you've given me. Will I wish that the son were dead at that point and just leave me alone so I can be Lord of my little kingdom? I think there's really two ways that this goes down. For those who harden their hearts and resist the grace of Jesus, there's going to be judgment because I can't get around the fact that the scriptures over and over tell us there's going to be an accounting. But for those who repent, before he comes, we find the life of God in and through his son. It is in Jesus that the justice of God and the mercy of God kiss. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He absorbed in his person the just punishment that we deserve, while at the same time extending the mercy of God by offering resurrection and new life, forgiveness of sin. How can we not love and adore an amazing God like that? Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the story that uh, shows your graciousness in pursuing us. It's an amazing thing uh, for you to pursue us time and time again, even if we were just ignorant, even if we were just clueless uh, of who you are. But when we consider the fact that we're not just clueless and ignorant, that we are rebellious, and in so many of the decisions we make, we, we set ourselves up as your enemy, working against your shalom, working against your kingdom, working against brothers and sisters made in your image, and I think how amazing, how much more amazing you are to pursue us, to offer us a lifeline uh, of a parable like this, of your word that convicts and corrects and also offers grace and an opportunity to repent and an opportunity to come clean. Lord, give us grace to follow you. I pray for grace uh, to die, to die to myself, to die to ourselves more and more each day to lay our agendas down, uh, and to receive the fullness of life that you offer through obedience and through love. Bless you, Lord. Amen.